There's a term in survivalist circles they call bending the map. A lot of times people can get lost even with a map in their hands. And what they'll do is they'll start like bending the reality around them to fit the map. So they'll be like, oh, the map says there's a lake here, but there's not a lake here. Oh, it probably dried up. Looks like there's a little bit of dried mud over there. It probably dried up. Well, the map says there should be a boulder here, but there's not. Well, maybe it rolled and you start bending the map and then the person realizes they're really lost. Adam McKay is talking about lakes and boulders. What he's picturing, however, is not the wilderness. It's a crowded cityscape where approximately 600 people will soon embark on a five-month journey. They will encounter the usual perils of filmmaking, plus new and dangerous pitfalls, particular to the autumn of 2020. A pandemic, social unrest, a tumultuous presidential election, major anxiety, and major eyeballs on him, the director, the person who's inspired the journey, the one holding the map. Am I deluding myself because I want to make this movie? Am I being clear-eyed about this? Am I bending the map? Adam wrote the script for Don't Look Up before the threat of a pandemic shut down the globe. It's a satire about what happens when a massive comet threatens life as we know it, and the human race is too divided to prevent its own extinction. Now that a major disaster has struck, it's become more vital than ever for Adam to tell this story, even though it's become harder for him to actually film it. So right now, he's assembling everything and everyone he will need to pull this off. I was just straight up terrified that we had put together this project and that there was a chance it was going to be dangerous. In a way, Adam's life was simpler six months ago, when COVID shut down all film and TV shoots, including his, just weeks before the start of production. A mass decision was made for him, nothing personal. But now that he's decided to brave the dangers and start filming again, it is personal. I had one worry, and only one worry, because we know how to make a movie, but it was just, is this safe? Adam has spent months going over Don't Look Up safety protocols, and it'll be months before any vaccines get approved. At that point, we didn't know as much about the virus. Even among the scientific community back then, there were just a lot of debates. Like, we still thought you could get it from surfaces as a common way of transmission. Like, that was the extra stress. The extra stress was, are we being crazy? Is this crazy? What are we doing? Here's the thing about being a director. You're responsible for everything, but you can't obsess about everything. There simply isn't time, and a director who tries will have a meltdown. So that means the director has to trust the crew to handle their piece of the mission. Still, Adam knows that he alone will shoulder the public fallout if it fails. I write the script. I'm directing it. I feel a pretty decent weight of responsibility for the safety of the crew and cast. Even with COVID, I just feel like everyone's there because of this movie that I wrote. So I do feel very responsible, even if that's legally not exactly true. It's hard emotionally not to feel that. To pull this off, Adam McKay will need his A-team. People who not only know how to make a movie, 
but know how to keep him sane while doing it. This is the last movie ever made. Mission hopefully possible. It's late October 2020. The Don't Look Up crew has arrived in Boston. Let's meet some of the key members. Consider them Adam's heist crew. We'll start with Kevin. If I'm going to get a project going, the first person you put the project uh, into their hands is Kevin Messick. Kevin Messick has produced every Adam McKay film and TV project for a decade. My working relationship with Adam is really simple. He's a genius. He writes great things, which make it really easy as a producer to go cast and make happen. That's the honest truth. You talk to him and he seems so officious and focused. And at the same time, he's also a sweetheart. Like he's a single dad who just goes to the, you know, the mat for his kids. For today, we'll give Kevin his heist nickname, the secret weapon. I'm not into nicknames. Too late, Kevin. One of the secret weapon skills is working with talent. In the case of Don't Look Up, a lot of that had to do with COVID. In a pie chart of where your mind goes as a producer making a film during the pandemic, I'd say at least 60% COVID safety because it was always more than half your day was dealing with COVID issues versus the production issues. The cast member who knew the most about the subject going into production was Tyler Perry. Initially, I can honestly tell you, my answer was no, I'm doing a movie. I just like, I don't know how I can feel safe or comfortable inside um, someone else's work and bubble if everybody's not locked down in one place, fenced in. During the summer of 2020, Tyler Perry turned his 330-acre studio in Atlanta into a totally controlled lockdown environment he nicknamed Camp Quarantine. He shot multiple projects without a COVID outbreak because everyone involved lived on the lot and didn't leave. That would not be possible for Don't Look Up, which would be shot on location in and around Boston. Understandably, Tyler had some questions. He told me straight up, made him very, very nervous. And we had calls with both him and the people that ran the labs, that ran the testing for him in Atlanta, to really walk through exactly how we were doing it and how strict we were, the types of tests that we had. So it was an interesting call that I've never had with an actor before in terms of walking through that much medical information. Those calls were successful. He came to Boston and he was very, very happy with how buttoned up and how we did what we said we did. Next up is Stacy. Hey, Stacy. Hi there. Stacy, ostensibly, when we started to work together, was my assistant. But very quickly, I realized that job title was not going to contain Stacy. Um, so she became my associate producer just because she, honest to God, can do everything. Eventually, Stacy will get bumped up to co producer. And not only that, she's a producer on this podcast. She acts in the movie. She did all the producing and arranging as far as our living situations. She was my go-between for all the safety and security we had to do. By the way, I think I'm still forgetting like three things that she did. Because of the film's COVID lockdown bubble, much of what we will hear on the podcast was recorded on Stacy's phone, which can go places inside the bubble that would otherwise be forbidden. Due to her many jobs, let's call Stacy the Swiss Army Knife. To call Stacy a Swiss Army Knife is downplaying her role. But it sounds cool, so we're going to keep using it. 
Let's move on to Susan. Susan Matheson. She is a creative force of nature. Her personality is just the greatest personality ever. She walks into a room and immediately the room is 27% more fabulous just from her very presence. Susan, as you might remember from episode one, is Adam's costume designer and has been ever since Talladega Nights. She did the NASCAR suits on Talladega Nights. And those suits were incredible. The people from NASCAR would look at them and say, like, where did you get these? And they're like hand stitched and they look incredible. I love people that it's not like just a gig. It's not like, oh, I have a job. For Susan, everything is personal. Everything is above and beyond. I'm responsible as a costume designer for every person that crosses the frame in the film. And I see them as part of a painting, which all together goes along with Adam McKay's vision for the movie. We have a complete portrait, a piece of art. Susan is the one who convinced Adam that Will Ferrell should unironically wear a light pink concert t-shirt featuring the face of the country singer Crystal Gale. An offbeat choice, but he agreed to it. So in honor of that shirt and of the sparkle Susan brings to set, we'll call her Glitter. And that brings us to Adam's fourth and final essential member of his high crew, Kate. It's like baked into the way we put a production together that we want to be laughing and joking around and never taking ourselves too, too seriously. And the center of that is Kate Hardman, the Texas Tornado. Ooh, Texas Tornado Kate has a nice ring to it. Let's go with that. So the Texas Tornado is a script supervisor, an unsung and important role. In short, Kate ensures that Adam has filmed every shot he needs to assemble the full movie. She's in charge of continuity. She's in charge of the script. She's the connection with the editor. And she sits next to me all day long. So for this movie in particular, I knew she was retired, but I was like, we can't do this. We need her special juju on set. And she did not want to do it. I mean, what would a heist be without the veteran pulled back in for one last job? After dropping out of high school in the 1960s and being thrown out by her parents, Kate got her first film job as an assistant artist at the age of 16. She then tried her hand at animation, then editing, then finally, an unforeseen event on one film landed her in the job of script supervisor. The director was having an affair with the script supervisor. Somehow his wife found out he was having an affair, so she was flying out. And the script supervisor had to leave. And uh, so they said, do you want to do the last three weeks of the film? You know, all the footage, you know what we're doing here. And I was like, yes. Yes, Yes, I will. Yes, I'll do that. So I go over to her hotel room, and she teaches me how to be a script supervisor while she's madly packing her bag to get on a plane to leave town. Kate continued working as a script supervisor for the next 40 years. Until 2018, when, after completing Adam's movie Vice... She told him that she was done. And in 2020, she was feeling at peace, retired, tending to her garden, but just when she thought she was out. I talked her into coming. 
And in typical Texas tornado fashion, she came, she came a spitting. She came a spitting and a fussing. Well, Adam, I don't know about this. This is just the kind of sarcastic voice Adam needs in his ear to cut through his anxiety. Gee, I really wanted to do something during the COVID being 68 years old. I wanted to, I wanted to chuckle at catastrophe. Secret weapon, Swiss army knife, glitter, and yes, Texas tornado will join Adam and the rest of the crew as they go into the don't look up bubble. This is Adam's way of isolating a crew of about 600 people from a city of over 600,000. When you go into the bubble, you're committing to, on the weekends, not being around other people, not going to supermarkets, not going to the post office, not going anywhere. You're staying home. Home has not been soothing for costume designer Susan Matheson, a.k.a. Glitter, who just weeks ago was terrified to walk to her own garbage cans. But now she's moved into her adopted Boston home, a furnished apartment where every night she will return alone. There will be no after-work drinks, no late-night French fries and gossip, no off-hours community. Once lockdown officially begins, the set will turn everyone into Jack Nicholson in The Shining. All work and no play. Total isolation. This does not go well for Jack. But Susan is oddly exhilarated by the security of the closed bubble. It's exciting, scary, and it's like a countdown. The clock is counting down to lockdown. I feel like there needs to be some kind of dramatic music. We need violins. And we need like a a launch. A movie set is like a village made up of different camps, like hair and makeup, construction, lighting, and craft services. But life in a pandemic meant the need for a whole new section of this village, the COVID department. They'd be responsible for masks, face shields, and air filters, and also tasks like maintaining social distance and cleaning locations. Initially, they estimated the COVID department needed 10 people, and they were very wrong about that. My name is Allie Wolf. I'm in the COVID department, and I coordinate testing for our cast. I'll arrive 45 minutes to an hour before the first actor gets there. How many are in your actual department, though, the COVID department? Oh, my God. I honestly don't even know all of them. That's how many there are. The answer is 78. And that's not counting secret weapon Kevin, who also found himself reluctantly playing a role. I was the fucking cop for people's activities on the weekends. It was a drag. Not only did all of our lead cast have to quarantine for eight days before they showed up on camera, anybody that was in the film, even down to the smallest part, had to do an eight-day quarantine before they showed up. So if you're walking through the White House hallway and somebody has one line, that person, even if they're living in Boston, has to be put into a hotel, quarantined for eight days, tested three times with negative results over that time for them to show up on stage or on a location or in a scene. So (laughs) it was a big puzzle. Movies are puzzles. This was, you know, it went from a thousand-piece puzzle to a million-piece puzzle. While we're on the topic of all that testing, here's Stacy, a.k.a. Swiss Army Knife, and other members of the cast and crew as they give us a tour of the set's COVID testing site, which has taken over a huge parking lot. I'm just pulling up to drive-through testing. It's all set up in a big loop. This is like a drive-thru. It's like McDonald's, except you don't get french fries. And I hit over three columns already. Oh, wow. These people have, like, hazmat suits on. 
I mean, I get it. You got to stick this thing up like your nose. You know, I got sensitive like things and I, you know, I hated it. It's a trip, man. I mean, my nose has gotten more more action than me in the past. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. My nose gets so much action. It's crazy. <laughs> I love going there because this is the only time I could go outside. I'm like, yes, COVID testing tomorrow. Yeah. I can't wait to stick some stuff up my nose. It's intense. We're sometimes tested two and three times a day. It, it's sort of like another job. Woo! That wasn't bad. And there you have it. That was a that right nostril. I think you really got up into my upper brain. Woo! Danielle Waxman is also in the bubble, gathering tape for this podcast. In this moment, she's grateful that the COVID tester is attempting to bring some levity to her nasal probe. As I'm getting tested, the guy's doing weird things with his eyes. He's like trying to make his eyes big. And he looks at me as he's doing the test and goes, I'm smizing. I learned that from America's Next Top Model. I'm doing that so everyone has a more pleasant experience during their testing. Unfortunately, someone during this pre-production time tests positive. Today is November 11th, 2020, and we just had our first positive test. This was bound to happen. The safety protocols are really good. It was caught very early. We're contact tracing but it's insane to see how it, it ricochets through something as ridiculous as a movie. Allie in the COVID department springs into action to contain that person, so the mission stays on track. She also contact traces and quarantines anyone who might be at risk. Thankfully, in this case, no one else inside the Don't Look Up bubble was affected, and the person who tested positive made a full recovery and eventually was able to return to work. If someone who you cannot make this movie without get COVID, the movie shuts down. But it's not just that because everyone interacts with everyone else. You're going to have to come within six feet of someone in your day of work. So it's kind of this like united feeling of we have to do this together. The 25 weeks of production will be an experiment in coming together for the common good to get the job done. After the break, Adam finally gets to call action. Are you feeling stressed? Me too. There's a comet headed towards Earth and we're all gonna die. But as my Grammy Clara used to say, when the end is near, get your mind clear. So I'm doing that. Like many, I've had trouble finding a therapist who doesn't spend the whole session acting like a complete know-it-all Budinsky. How can you really open up when they're constantly giving me such specific actions and boring strategies that will most definitely mess up my whole vibe? That's why I started using Go Mental. Go Mental prides itself on therapists that listen, care, and most importantly, aren't actually therapists. That's right. Not a single one of Go Mental's counselors have a degree in psychology. Instead, we have concerned independent contractors that actually care. Personally, I was helped by Brett. No matter what I talked to him about, he kept typing, just do it. I think he thought he was my trainer. He kept talking about volleyball, and I liked that. He gave me support, even when he said I didn't deserve it. So what are you waiting for? The world is ending. The path of enlightenment is probably too long. So Go Mental will keep you comfortably in the same place you've been emotionally since you took your first steps, fell down, and never got back up. Go Mental.
Here we go, rehearsing. And background action. It's November 16th, 2020. The cast and crew have all quarantined. They've been tested. They've watched their Netflix safety videos. And they've finally arrived at day one on set. Don't Look Up will be shot largely in chronological order. The film begins with astronomer Katie Biaski peering through a telescope erected on the summit of Mauna Kea, a dormant volcano on the big island of Hawaii. This is where she first discovers the comet. Adam McKay here on set. We're about to roll film on our first shot. Jennifer Lawrence ascending to the control computer for the telescope, where everyone's wearing masks, face shields. Um, everyone's in pretty good spirits, considering. Kate Biaski is, naturally, played by Jennifer Lawrence. Due to the pandemic, Hawaii is played, most unnaturally, by a warehouse in Boston. All right, let's do this shit. Master off, shields are off, ready, and let's roll, please. Don't worry, mask and shields off only for the actors, like Leonardo DiCaprio. It kind of felt like we were walking onto the set of Outbreak every single day. Everyone seemed to be in full <laughs> hazmat suits, triple layered. The first day on a film set is always awkward. It's even harder when these people are the first large group of humans anyone on set has interacted with in months. Thus the common fears. Those insecurities from the middle school cafeteria that in many people, even movie stars, never heal. Fears such as, who will eat lunch with me? Will I have friends? Are now magnified. Can anyone eat lunch with me? Can I have friends? Luckily, Jennifer and Leo are already friendly. And so it's always like a huge relief when it's like, oh, okay, you're nice, you're professional, you're, you know, this is, this is going to work out fine. And then you just kind of fall into it and it's, and it's great. And yeah, it's, it's because we can't be in constant communications with Adam because he has to stand far away and everything's on the microphone. We, we kind of look at each other and give each other tiny little notes too. <laughs> Adam has to stand very far away from his actors, farther than you're imagining right now because of COVID protocols. But he has an idea to get them into the mindset they need for these early scenes. If you really look at the structure of the movie, you know, Leo and Jen's characters, Kate and Randall, really kind of start at the highest pinnacle of humanity. You know, they're at a telescope. It's logic, it's knowledge, it's science. They're looking into the heavens, you know, from a place of humility and supplication and observation. They're then going to like go down from the mountain into the insane world that we live in, this kind of ass backwards, uh, just crazed world that we all know so well. So I asked Nick to write this piece that would reflect that feeling in the beginning of the movie. The Nick Adam is referring to is composer Nicholas Bertel, who also scored The Big Short and Vice. And the idea was that this music would help Adam convey the kind of tone he was going for in the film. Let's cue Nick's overture as we hear him explain. Adam actually asked me at one point for a piece of music that he could play on set and could play for the actors. And that was something new. Like, we haven't really done that before. Nick and Adam may not have done this, but 100 years ago, at a time when the film industry was dealing with their own pandemic, this is exactly how silent movies were made. Some silent film directors hired a string quartet to play for their performers. 
These violins say you're happy. This cello says you're sad. It's an old technique made new again by necessity. And it was in November, it was right in November, uh, that I wrote this kind of overture to the movie, um, which I, I called the overture, the overture to logic and knowledge. It's just utterly beautiful. I mean, it is stunning. Like, you want to listen to the piece of music and just lay on a green lawn for, like, three hours. That was the piece that I wrote, because the idea was, in the film, if we don't respect logic and rationality and science and and knowledge, uh, what happens? So... You know, it's always a fascinating question when you're sort of taking these abstract ideas and you're trying to turn them into a sonic landscape. So while we were making the movie and you would hear all this craziness going on, I would sometimes put that, I would sometimes put on Nick's piece and it would just be like a warm shower washing away the insanity. The voice of God. Let me explain. Adam McKay's on set. Technically, however, no one can see him. Adam is sequestered in a plastic tent surrounded by monitors that he watches while speaking to his actors through a microphone. He always directs this way. It allows him to call out lines or encourage improv without taking a break in the action to give direction. There was a situation where he had a microphone and he just hear this sort of voice <laughs> emanating from the room. Try this. Say this line. Do this. Uh, it kept you on your toes, but it, uh, it was great to have that sort of uh, voice of comedic genius sort of hovering over you um, for all the actors. Adam sits in a blue armchair with a red sticker on the back that reads Supreme. Supreme as in the streetwear brand, but also Supreme as in the deity, the unseen. Yes, voice of God. Someone stuck the sticker onto his chair as a joke. Good work, everyone. Reset. Adam hates this tent, and it won't last. Soon it'll be replaced by movable plexiglass walls, as though he's an action figure in a toy box. The walls are the work of the COVID team. The chair is for a different reason. Adam has a movement disorder called essential tremor, which causes him to shake. And if people stare at him or ask him about it, the shaking gets worse. Essential tremor, it's a weird disorder. I mean, it's totally harmless. I always tell people when they want to know what it is. I was like, do you remember Catherine Hepburn? They're like, yes. And I was like, that. She had essential tremor. I don't really care, but if it throws the actor off or if it becomes distracting, I'd be like, ah, shit. Like, it kind of would get in the way. So I started saying, like, hey, are there any high back chairs? Like, why not? Hence that blue armchair. I don't have to worry about sitting in a chair and getting shaky and having to cover up for it or feeling self-conscious. If it happens, I just lean into my high back chair and it's comfortable. It grounds him. It makes some of the shaking go away. In my early 20s, I had a couple times where I noticed I would get a little shaky in my hands. But, you know, the tricky thing is people, everyone gets shaky sometimes. Like if you don't eat, if you're nervous, like 
everyone gets shaky sometimes. I was doing Second City, and I had a couple times on stage where I kind of got like a little extra shaky. And then I went to a neurologist, and he's like, you have a central tremor. And he was very blasé about it. He was just like, ah, oh, it's no, no big deal. It's harmless. But then when I was at Saturday Night Live, I started really struggling with it because it's the thing that the doctor doesn't tell you is it's kind of embarrassing. And it also connects with, it creates kind of a panic attack response where you get self-conscious about it and you try and cover it up, which of course makes it worse. I mean, when it really started like kind of taking my legs out from under me was like in my early 30s where I started like becoming too conscious of it. it started, I started avoiding situations, uh, really kind of changing my life around it. The thing I learned, the big change for me was after those moments, I used to walk away and go, God damn, you're fucked up. Like, what's wrong? What are you going to do about this? You got to fix this. And now I walk away and I just have a whole conversation where it's like, it's okay. It's a big world out there. You're cool with yourself. Like, I love you no matter what. Think of all the things you're great about. I think of all the lucky things you have in your life. And like, I just put it in perspective. Nothing has been better or more powerful than when you, I put myself into situations where I get shaky and I just go, that's fine. So far, you've been picturing Adam seated alone in a giant plexiglass box. However, he's not alone. One person is allowed in Adam's box, Kate Hardman the Texas tornado. To better picture Kate, I will tell you that she has short gray hair and glasses and wears fashionable scarves, mostly earth tones, many of which she knit herself. Kate, as I trust you remember, is Adam's script supervisor. During a shoot, Kate and Adam are together at least 12 hours a day. Naturally, the two are close. They've created their own bubble within the bubble. The first time I did LSD, I liked it. And what was the first time you did LSD? When I was babysitting the baby next door. <laughs> <laughs> I was 15. Jesus Christ, you were 15? Despite what you just heard, Kate does keep Adam on track. Like the day on the set of Don't Look Up, when Adam decided to blow off some steam by blasting the heavy metal band Anthrax. With many more pages to shoot, this was not the time for Adam to rock out. So the Texas tornado picked up the oversized speaker and... She walked out with the speaker. She's literally rolling it down the stairs. (laughs) I took care of that. (laughs) That is the sort of power move that can only happen when the set is truly a team. I want people that are independent-minded. I want people who think differently than I do. Like, that's the whole fun of it. Which is why over in the costume department, Susan Matheson, a.k.a. Glitter, has been empowered to make her own decisions as she helps the actors get into character. I'm really interested in how they feel as the character in the costume. I really want to get the quick, no-bullshit answer. I always say, I'm an Aries. Aries, born between March 21st and April 19th, are a fire sign. They're confident, determined, and short-tempered, and their dislikes include inactivity, delays, and work that does not use one's talents. Or as Susan will put it, A lot of times I'll say to an actor in a fitting, listen, 
Just tell me to my fucking face. I fucking hate it. The costume department is Susan's domain. Here she has a ritual that she repeats on every Adam McKay set. The first thing that happens on any movie is that I take John Wayne and the wolf and ship them to wherever we're going on location. (laughs) So the first thing to arrive on any location is John Wayne and the wolf. John Wayne and the wolf are talismans, dating back to 2005, the year Susan and Adam were on location in North Carolina, when Susan decided to go thrift store shopping. That's where I found the Crystal Gale t-shirt that I used on Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights. I looked up on the wall and I saw two velvet paintings and one was a gigantic picture of John Wayne and the other one was a smaller picture of a wolf looking up at a moon. You can picture these works of art. You've seen versions of them in ironic dive bars. Perhaps you once went on a date with someone who had art like this on their bedroom wall. Perhaps you then immediately left. These particular paintings, however, have become sacred objects. And I was like, I need these as totems to protect me on every movie in costume fittings. (laughs) So from that moment on, on Talladega Nights, moving forward... I would put the John Wayne picture in the entrance hall of every movie I did, and I would have the wolf in the fitting room. And in every fitting, I noticed that people were looking at the camera when I was taking fitting pictures, and they were looking really uptight. And so I'd say, look at the wolf. It was incredible how many actors said, how did you know the wolf is me? Now it's the third week in November 2020. The cast and crew of Don't Look Up are settling into their routine. They go to work. They go home. They stay within the lines. Teamwork is happening. You stay home every single night and all weekend. You go for a walk. Like, I work out a little bit. But essentially, I'm just inside. And uh, there's some weird sports on with no audiences in the crowd. And I'll do work, and I'll write, and I'll do my laundry, and... uh, Just last week, I was like, I think I'm going a little insane. I think this is like living on a submarine. Anyone on set who looked at John Wayne and the Wolf and didn't immediately identify with the lonesome cowboy or the solitary animal is now beginning to understand. They're isolated from their pack. It was the biggest challenge that I've ever had in terms of making films when you have to go away from home. Without the ability, because of COVID, to travel back and forth, I missed my daughter's 16th birthday, I missed Thanksgiving, I missed Christmas, and my son's 18th birthday. It was a lot to miss. Isolation sucks no matter what, but there's six more layers to it as a parent with kids that struggle more while you're away than when you're present. But the bubble that we had to create, and again, this was pre-vaccine, was super, super strict in order for this whole endeavor to be pulled off successfully. Many asked to bring partners and family members into the bubble. The answer was always no. The team has to stick to the plan. And yet the team is also physically unable to bond. When each day is wrapped, each person goes back to their empty apartment alone, including Jennifer Lawrence. 
being alone and not being able to see, you know, my husband or my friends on the weekend. And I'm so close to New York and so close to home and that kind of isolation and even just the isolation at work. You know, I can't make any friends because every time I run towards somebody, they run away. I'm Hetty in Park and I'm playing Dr. Calder on Don't Look Up. Um, Usually when you're working in an environment like this, the best part of it for me is getting to hang out with your coworkers and getting to know people and talking shit and stuff and having fun. So a lot of that's been removed. So um, it's really kind of disorienting. You, you can't see anybody's faces and it's just very, I was nervous about that aspect because that's one of the best parts about filming is making friends with the crew and, you know, I go, go, come up to people and they scream. So, you know, everybody's like, stand back, make a hole. God, this was depressing. I'm going to go order some alcohol now. This level of isolation and lives put on pause translated into a keener focus on the only thing present, the movie. Again, here's Leonardo DiCaprio. All the actors just mainly stayed home and went to set and talked about the movie. So it was certainly a unique process. You know, none of us have ever made a movie in those conditions, but I think it gave us a tremendous amount of uh, focus on what we were trying to accomplish in the film. Every morning, Adam wakes up and goes through his daily protocols. Temperature check, mask, shield, hand sanitizer, COVID test. All while giving over as much of his brain as he can to being creative, to thinking about the actual storytelling work of that day. This strange new way of making a movie, without any real face-to-face interaction, is leaving Adam feeling disconnected. And if he's feeling that way, then he's sure others are too. His idea to play Nick Bertel's score worked out well. So what if he went bigger? I also did something I've never really done. I created a big, giant playlist of music and just played it on set all the time to try and make up for the lack of connection by having some sort of common music. And I asked everyone in the crew to send me songs they wanted on it. So the list became huge. I had three, 400 songs, maybe 400 songs by the end. Then Adam thinks about the physical limitations of uniting these 600 plus people. He decides as the leader, it's his job to try to speak to all parts of the filmmaking village. And then the final idea I had was, I've never done this before, but I did a weekly kind of update from the director and we would send them to everyone. Uh, from the security guard by parking to, you know, number one on the call sheet for the actors. So for me to get to write these updates, it felt like it was connecting me to everyone. I was like alone in my apartment every single night. Meanwhile, outside of the Don't Look Up bubble, across the country, COVID cases are climbing to the highest point of the pandemic to date. As the production heads into the holiday season, Everyone's forced to accept that this year will not be a time for reunion with loved ones. They cannot go back for a weekend. They cannot go home. Hair department head Patty Dehaney and costume supervisor Sarah Walbridge record diaries of their solo celebrations. Good morning, Boston. Happy Thanksgiving 2020. I'm going to do a little cooking today. Making some brine right now for my little turkey breast. I'm going to bake a pie. And I plan on sharing whatever I make with my crew that are staying in this building with me. Thanksgiving is just totally different than it ever was before, but I'm grateful to be amongst friends today. 
And let me rephrase that. I'm not actually with anyone. I just mean we're all in the same building together, you know, watching the the Thanksgiving parade on TV and texting back and forth about Dolly Parton's beautiful costumes. Well, now at five, the coronavirus pandemic leading to big changes for the iconic Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. No more lining up along the streets to see the floats pass by. This year, it will be a television-only event. Some of the Thanksgiving Day Parade that's airing right now. Super weird, man. Streets are completely empty around it. Like to see New York City, just weird to see it this empty. Swiss Army Knife Stacy calls home to celebrate virtually with her daughter, Frida. Hey, Free Bear. Hi. You doing okay, Sweetie Bear? Hi, Sweetie Bear. Do you want me to read you a book? Would that make you feel better? I could read one about Thanksgiving. Do you want me to read a turkey story? I want you to come home. Oh, to come home. I know, sweetie bear. I know, sweetie. I'll tell you what, I'm going to come home for good in a little bit. We got to wait a little bit longer after all the holidays. And then I'm going to come back for good. And then we'll just be back to normal. To the good times. How about I read you a turkey story, sweetie? I got one about this plump and perky turkey. How funny is that? Do you want to hear it? Okay. Look at that. A plump and perky turkey. After that call, Stacy begins to write a song. Thanksgiving alone feels odd. I guess I'll split some turkey with someone in my pot. I can't, I can't. Can't keep going with this mask and shield And it just started snowing It's the last movie ever made No, it's the last movie ever made So far, Adam and this team of hundreds are on track Despite the isolation and fear and anxiety Adam has not yet bet the map He's not lost himself in delusions that this is easy. To make this movie takes vigilance. It'll be several long and hard months before they leave Boston with a completed film. And a crucial member of the team hasn't even arrived yet. Adam might be the commander-in-chief on the set, but someone else holds that title in his movie. Soon, the Meryl Streep will enter the bubble. Everyone's excited. But Jennifer Lawrence is both excited and terrified. When we first met on Zoom, this was like on my phone, like waiting, you know, like, oh, everybody will get on. And I was going, and then I heard like, hello. And I looked up and was like, oh, and it was Meryl. And that was just over a Zoom rehearsal. Just wait till Meryl takes command of the Oval Office. I was insane, I will say that, on this film. I was completely nuts. More on that next time on The Last Movie Ever Made.
The Last Movie Ever Made is a production of Netflix Film, Hyperobject Industries, and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Emmanuel Hapsis, Gabrielle Lewis, Stacey Robert Steele, Daniel Waxman, Sophie Bridges, and Alexis Moore. Our editor is Darby Maloney. The show's narrated by Emmanuel Hapsis. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Hannes Brown with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The show is written by R. Roosevelt. Fact-checking by Charlotte Gadu. Executive producers at Hyperobject Industries are Adam McKay, Harry Nelson, and Claire Slaughter. Executive producers at Pineapple Street Studios are Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Don't Look Up is streaming now on Netflix. Follow at Netflix Film on Instagram and Twitter.